This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Hi everyone, I think we're ready to begin. Okay, I'd like to introduce the speaker for today. Her name is Zante. Zante is a manager in PwC's actuarial risk and quants practice with over nine years of experience. She has experience in the UMA and Sal captive industry with a particular focus on capital modeling and reinsurance modeling for the general insurance or short-term industry. Her presentation today is going to cover a practical guide to application of the credit quality steps in um, producing the Prudential Standards Regulatory Returns, and she's going to give us some insights based on her own experiences. Zante? Thank you, Renasha, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for being here. I'm really excited to present today. Um, the presentation for me is is, is twofold. The reason for it is twofold. First of all, on a more personal note, I fear public speaking. <laughs> I'm not a fan. So part of this is is the personal journey of, of facing my fears. So so thanks for being here and the support. And the second one is probably more for you. It's an interesting topic. I've had the opportunity um, to both prepare the calculations for a short-term insurer in, um, for the prudential, the prudential calculations and also in the past few months to actually audit these type of calculations. Um, and from the start, this topic intrigued me uh, and, it, and it still does. So before we start, I quickly just want to read you a, a small joke. Um, so two people are flying in a hot air balloon and they realize that they are lost. They see a man on the ground and they navigate towards him. And they yell, can you please help us? We are lost. And he replies, you're in a hot air balloon about 200 feet off the ground. And one of the people in the balloon says, you must be an actuary because you gave very accurate information, but it was completely useless. So hopefully today is not like that. Um, let's keep it an interactive session. Um, there's time for questions towards the end. But if you have any comments or queries as I go through my presentation, please don't hesitate to put up your hand and, and we can discuss it. The idea is that it's interactive and um, as consultants we always say the correct answer is it depends. So therefore I may not have all the answers today, but I feel that discussions um, usually end up in, in good solutions or at least just a new perspective. So the focus of my discussion would gravitate towards the general uh, insurance industry or calculations as this is where I spend most of my time. Um, and we're gonna merely scrape the surface on this topic today. Um, but I'm hoping that with sessions like this, um, it will encourage us as a profession to, to delve deeper into our understanding and through co collaboration expand on our understanding and our interpretation of of these things. So this is just a quick summary of, or agenda of, of what we'll touch on today. First of all, I'll provide a short background. 
then we can look into more detail into the Prudential Standard Guidance, both, both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. I'll touch briefly on some alternative approaches, then we'll move into the live poll. Um, so just for that, can I just see a show of hands who has downloaded the app and who will be able to participate in the poll? Okay, great. Okay, and then we'll have the results um, on the screen. We'll look at some of the things to consider when we tackle credit quality steps, as well as, as some examples, and then we'll move into the conclusion and a Q&A session towards the end. So we see credit quality steps in our SAM solvency capital requirement calculations in the FSIs. Um, we essentially shop counterparties exposure uh, for default in these modules. So you'll see this is the not the full ACR module, um, but just the areas where these shocks are applied. And like I mentioned today, um, my comments and examples will gravitate towards the short-term side. So we'll look at market risk and the two items in there, spread and default risk and concentration. And in the non-live underwriting risk, we'll look at premium and reserve risk and cat risk. So in essence, the counterparties are ranked according to credit quality steps. The shocks depend on the credit quality step ranking and the cons these considerations with the FSIs um, also in the GOIs. So we'll jump right into the detail of the Prudential Standards. <clears throat> I have some extracts from the Prudential Standards for different sections and I reference them. Um, with some commentary on that. So if we start with FSI 4.1, section 9.9, .9, we read that the calculation of the capital requirements for spread and default risk relies on the assignment of credit ratings to instruments. And the basis on which the credit ratings are assigned is through credit quality steps. And these should reflect the long-term historic probabilities of default rather than the external credit ratings and it allows for different external and internal ratings to be used in a consistent manner. So I've seen the notion that um, although, or, I mean, in here we see that credit ratings are allowed and we use it, but the aim is actually to do an investigation on the probabilities of default um, and not just depend on the credit ratings provided by third parties. In section 9.10, we see the interesting uh, comment where an insurer relies on external ratings and there's more than one external rating available. Again, the historic default rates must be assessed. So the notion here is, is then just to move to the more, more prudent rating. And it would be quite interesting to see who actually does the independent investigation. Um, and maybe there's merit to actually use less onerous credit rating. If we look at section 9.12, attachment 4, the capital requirement for spread risk takes into account the loss given default as well as shocks and factors to consider per counterparty. So in these counterparties and shocks we notice um, considerable differences in the factors to use in the various credit quality steps. If we look at section 9.17, there's some more details and more numbers. The default risk for type 1 rated entities 
um, these exposures, um, it's calculated taking into account the loss given default, a fixed gamma, and then a probability of default per the counterparty. So I'm pretty sure all of us um, are aware and familiar with this table. And this is used to take your external credit rating um, and match it one-on-one -on -one to a credit quality step here. So nice and easy on the short-term side, we see you start with the top rating and you work down this table and assign the ratings one-on-one. -on -one. In section 9.27, we see that for type 3 cash at bank exposures, um, the, it, it's calculated taking account, again, a factor assigned to each counterparty um, based on a credit quality step. And here we notice um, the big jumps and the big numbers from credit quality step 8 onwards, um, which is quite interesting as this is where our banks are typically rated at. Then section 10.4 um, elaborates more on these steps. So um, the calculation of concentration risk um, capital requirement. So again, in the market risk module, it's step one, excess, excess exposure per counterparty. Step two, uh, then there's a capital requirement calculation per counterparty, and then aggregation in step three, again, across all counterparties. So in all of these, there's significant um, focus on the counterparties and the shocks that needs to be applied per counterparty. What's really interesting for me in this one is it's not different treatment for credit quality steps each step. These are banded. So there won't be a different treatment for a credit quality step or a bank with credit quality step between, say, 8 and 9, but there's a significant difference in the calc in the one step um, drop from 9 to 10, um, which can be quite significant in the calculations. And I'll take you through some of um, the examples later on in the presentation. Then when we look at step two, again, there's a banded approach for credit quality steps one to six, and then from seven onwards, again, one step, uh, a one-step approach. So really an interesting phenomenon in the prudential standards. So I just want to ask, is there any questions so far, any comments, any interesting um, observations someone has at this point? Okay. So when we look at FSI 4, attachment 2, insurers are required to account for default risk. Um, and this requirement extends to the recoverables from risk mitigation instruments. So, so far, just maybe a consideration for banks. I mean, these calculations are applicable to your reinsurers as well. Um, and then they treat it as type 1 exposures. So, um, both, very, both very important and different calculations apply on both. Um, <clears throat> if we then move towards the GOIs, so... The FSI versus the GOI, it sometimes feels to me as if we treat them as mutually exclusive or the GOI is not so important as the FSI because there's no calculation that you can apply. It's judgment. Um, it's stuff to think about. We probably think, oh, this is the board's problem. Um, but they're actually equally important and not mutually exclusive. Um, FSIs guide you in the calculations. Um, so pillar one while the GRIs focus on the governance and the risk management. 
And if you use your, you can use your GRIs as a guidance to inform the process for your FSI calculations, and the compliance with GRI automatically improves and talks to the processes for the FSI. So I enjoy reading the GRIs, give some new perspective, and in this case, <laughs> in this case, it's actually quite helpful for these particular calculations, and I'll show you why. Um, so if we look at GRI 3.3, section 6.1. We read that an insurer must regularly perform a sufficient level of due diligence on its reinsurers to ensure that the insurer is aware of its counterparty risk and is able to assess and manage such risk. So I'm not sure who of you is reading this for the first time. Not, okay, that's good news. Um, so it, it would actually be very interesting for me to, to know what, what companies are doing in this. And what the benefits are that, that we're seeing in this and not just using the external credit rating. Any comments on, on that? Due diligence is performed and benefits from it? Okay. So for me, there's a lot of gray in this. There are three words for me that, that, that we could class as gray. The one is regularly. What does it mean? Does it mean annually? Does it mean quarterly? Does it mean when you're busy with your reinsurance renewals. Um, the second one is sufficient. We'll look in se section 6.3 at things to consider when you do your due diligence. But what does sufficient mean? Does it mean you need to consider all of those, some of those? Um, the third word for me is reinsurers. Is it your current panel? Is it your panel from a previous year with still some open claims? What does, it, what does it entail? How, how far and then how much detail should you go into this, um, just this one sentence in, in the GRIs? So if we look at section, section 6.3, these are the things to consider when you do a due diligence for your reinsurer. So it's typically the skills and expertise of your reinsurer, claims payment records, um, ability to meet future obligations, balance sheet strength, funding sources and liquidity, operational capabilities, governance risk and risk management controls. Um, and if you look at this list, this is typically the things that a rating agency will consider when it, when it performs a rating um, exercise. So in this, the GRI actually guides us to do our own rating of a reinsurer. Um, and this touches on the sufficient level that's, that's considered in section 6.1. So these are all open for interpretation, but the point is that consideration should be given to this, um, and maybe more investigation into the GRIs are necessary. Then we skip back to section 6.2. The level of due diligence an insurer must perform on its reinsurer must be commensurate with the level of exposure to that reinsurer. Um, and this would probably um, probe or, or force smaller insurers to actually um, investigate the bigger reinsurers first and then work through the rest of the panel. It shouldn't be solely dependent on third-party assessment, such as rating agencies uh, or brokers. Um, and then it should be no less thorough, even if the counterparty is a related or interrelated party of the insurer. So these all touch on 
um, nature, complexity and scale, and definitely a big focus on independence in these, in these ratings that we apply. I think this one is for me the most interesting one. Section 6.5 says, where the insurer is aware that a reinsurer relies significantly on retrocessions, the insurer must also identify and assess the financial standing of the reinsurer's retrocessionaires. So, yeah, there's probably scope for industry to come together in these assessments. Because there's significant merit for reinsurers and insurers, and probably reinsurers brokers, to work together in these assessments to, benefit, to the benefit of both entities. Um, a validated independent rating could mean more business for the reinsurer as insurers, especially the smaller ones, um, would place more business with reinsurers with a, with a better credit rating. Um, and this could contribute to the consideration in justifying alternative approaches to get to credit ratings, as well as the consistency of credit quality steps in the market. So I think we're all familiar with the normal table of taking your rating and applying um, it to the table to a probability of default. So now I'll just briefly touch on, on some of the alternative approaches to consider. So firstly, and this probably doesn't classify as a full-on alternative approach, but there could be a banded approach where you take a few external ratings and band them together and then map them um, to a probability of default, so not a true one-on-one -on -one approach. There's various credit models um, out there where it's calculated, uh, ratings are calculated internally, or it can be outsourced. Um, the key thing in all of these considerations, whether you do an alternative approach or some banding approach, is validation. Um, this one is probably more relevant for the life insurers, who's already seeing some of this. Um, and then the third one is validated internal models, where you rely on the validated internal model of a specific counterparty. So why not look at the internal model of your reinsurers, um, collaborate on it, and get to a point where independently it's been validated that the credit rating is probably, or well, can be argued that it can be different to the external rating given to that counterparty. <coughs> So now I would like us to quickly move to the live poll. If you can just take out your phones. There's just four questions. Um, and the aim is just to um, set the scene, to see um, what the audience is made up of, um, the representation in the market, and what's, what's currently happening. So quickly want to see what the audience mix is. Life insurance, general insurers, banks, reinsurers, other. <laughs> okay, 50 60%, okay, it's still counting. Okay, I think that slowed down a little bit. So, um, oh, there it goes again. Okay, I think we can talk about this. It seems to be fairly stable. So, mostly life insurers. Um, so, just on the other, what others? Is there maybe regulators, reinsurance brokers, some volunteers on what the other makes up? Yes? Consultants, okay. Regulator, that's interesting. <laughs> okay, if we move to question two. 
Is your organization aware of methods other than external credit rating? So question two and three, very similar. Question two is, is your, is your organization aware? And question three will be, are you using these methods? So just quickly, let's just check awareness. Is your organization aware of these methods? Okay, that's, a, that's good. So majority at least aware that alternatives are possible. Okay, and then we can move on to question three. Now that we're aware, who is using the other methods? Okay. So this is quite interesting. I think this is what I expected. The the awareness is there. Um, it's just, um, and we'll get to question four just now. So awareness is there, but probably use of it not not embedded quite yet, um, and we're moving towards it. So if we look at question four, we'll get to the reason. So the main reason for not using the alternatives as opposed to the external credit rating. So first option, we have not yet thought about it. Second, we have thought about it, but we will in the next 12 months. I think a big thing is cost and resources. And the last one, purely because the credit rating approach is easy and um, acceptable. I think we can move on. I think we, we have some perspective on this, on where we're all at, what we're focusing on. Um, so cost and resources, definitely definitely a, a big thing. And if we move to, um, let me just switch back to the presentation. There we go. Um, so some considerations when you, when, you, when you think about using external credit ratings or the alternative um, methods and models. So first of all, um, the pro with the external credit rating, and we've seen it now, it's, it's available, um, it's acceptable. There's no additional costs required or resources. Um, and the effect on the ACR, if you don't rely on reinsurers that much or um, there's, there's enough spread in your calculations, the effect on the ACR is probably negligible. The negative side is what to do if there's more than one credit rating. Is there a consistent approach? Um, do we switch between approaches? Um, we sit with the rating agency bias probably, and then the effect on the ACR could be negative. Um, it could have a massive impact if you just stick to using the credit ratings. For the alternative methods and models, um, positive could be better accuracy, but this could also lead to spurious accuracy. Um, the governance and the risk management is a key point here. If you if you independently assess these, there's automatic uh, compliance with, with the GRIs, especially for, for your reinsurers. Um, we get to an independent view, um, and again, the effect on the SCR, depending on the situation um, and the specific scenario, could either be negligible or actually a, a big effect. And on the negative side, as I mentioned, it could lead to spurious accuracy, and cost and resources, as we just identified now, is, is a big consideration in, in these um, alternative methods. Some further, further considerations for your company specifically. Um, it's recommended that you have a board-approved policy on your credit quality steps, regardless of the method. Um, 
because this would touch on this can touch on many of the matters considered up to now and also outline the processes for alternative methods. Um, a key thing is documentation, just to ensure that there's consistency within the group and within divisions, and also that it's nicely documented in your OSA. I've seen instances where between uh, different divisions, there is a slight inconsistency between um, credit ratings. When you talk about the sovereign cap, is it for disclosure? Is it for calculations? Um, do we use the, if there's more than one credit rating, do we, which one do we use? So it's just to ensure that consistency within, within your organization. Um, definitely need to consider compliance with GRI. Um, nature, scale, and complexity, I'll touch on that a bit more in the calculations, we will, that will come through, just to guide you towards where the focus should be, um, is it necessary to do these extra calculations and investigations, and will it add value? And then frequency of updates, um, when do we do the updates when there's, when we specifically use um, external credit ratings, is it when the ratings change, do we do an annual check? Uh, for models, when is it updated, when do we make changes, a key thing is when is it validated, who is going to validate it and when is it going to happen in all of these deadlines that we face um, every month and quarter. So the ideal is for all of these to be considered in the outline credit quality step policy and uh, with probably an annexure to show for which reinsurers or banks a different approach is followed. Um, maybe with the specific ratings used. Um, there's really no correct answer on this, but probably a good idea to have some documentation on this. And then these considerations is probably for us as an industry. What do we do with sovereign downgrades? How do we take the volatility from this? Uh, what can be done for this? Um, what do we do if there's difference in ratings? For instance, S&P and Moody's have different ratings on an entity. How do we treat that? Um, and what is appropriate and relevant for the specific entity. And then industry consistency. Do we really have industry consistency on credit quality steps? Especially for the smaller players, um, it, it might be a, a big concern. And then collaboration. I really think there's scope for more of these sessions, probably working groups maybe involving the regulator. Um, but also just in your smaller space, we, the insurer, reinsurer, and your reinsurance broker, just on the reinsurance side, can work together to make sure that it is the best possible and most accurate answer for credit ratings for a specific entity. So now I'll take you through just three very simple examples to show the effect this can have. So the first example is the effect of a three-notch improvement in credit quality step uh, of a main reinsurer for an insurer with a significant reliance on proportional reinsurance. And we'll specifically look at the non-life underwriting risk CAT risk module. And then the effect of a three-notch improvement in the credit quality step of a main reinsurer for a larger insurer with no significant reliance on reinsurance, with just a non-proportional structure in place. And we'll also look at the CAT risk module. And then lastly, the effect of a one-notch improvement in the credit quality steps of banks, of a small insurer, in the market risk shock. If we look at um, example one, just the assumptions I've used. So we'll look at an insurer that writes property and motor, um, with premiums of 40 million and 60 million for property and motor, respectively. 
Um, the NADCAD exposure is 4 billion with a majority of the exposure in Gauteng. The RI structure will assume is a 90% quota share just with one reinsurer. So this is not very simplistic, um, taking away the effect of diversification and other non-prop structures in place. Um, and the two scenarios we, we'll consider is scenario one with credit quality step eight for the reinsurer and then scenario two credit quality step five for the reinsurer. So if we look at the non-life underwriting risk charge, premium and reserve risk, um, it does come down, come down between credit quality step eight and five, but not as significant as the drop in the CAD risk from 15.5 to 11.2, and this results in a 50% decrease in your capital charge, just by making sure this credit quality step is more accurate. Um, so there's some um, very simplified assumptions in here. Usually for a smaller <laughs> insurer, you do see a non-prop structure in place. Um, this would obviously have another effect, but it's really just to encourage um, further investigation into these scenarios in your own in your own calculations and in your own book. Um, then the second example, um, again, property and motor line of business with slightly higher premiums of 400 million and 600 million for property and motor. The net kind of exposure also slightly higher at 40 billion with most exposure in housing. And then here we assume a RI structure of just uh, non-prop, uh, excess of loss structure in place for catastrophes with a 20 million deductible. Um, and a similar scenario of the credit quality step, scenario one on credit quality step eight and scenario two credit quality step five. So no difference in premium and reserve risk because of no, no proportional structures in place. The cat risk drops slightly and then you can see a very, very insignificant change in the capital risk charge. So um, here we can see the nature, scale, and complexity argument coming in. It's probably a very um, unique thing you need to consider in your own calculations. It depends on the specific scenario, the specific reinsurer, the specific book, the specific um, scenarios outlined in a prudential standards, what is applicable, what is applied, um, the structures in place, the diversification between your panel. So really uh, um, an encouragement to look at these calculations for your specific scenario and specific company. And in this case, insurer one would typically more be more um, motivated to look into these calculations than the larger insurer we see in this example, for which this um, independent calculation of a credit quality step probably doesn't make too much of a difference. However, I will still argue um, to do that with to have compliance with GRI and at least the independent view of the risk you face in your in your counterparty. Then we can look at a market risk a market risk shock assumption. So here we look at the insurer with the asset base of 204 million split as follows. We'll have um, most of the exposure in banks and in scenario one we'll look at credit quality step 10 and scenario two we'll just move it up one notch in that band um, into band one, credit quality step nine and then for the equities we'll keep it on credit quality step seven in both calculations. So a small drop in your spread and counterparty default calculation 
with a significant drop in the concentration calculation. Really just making sure that one, one step difference is, is taken account of accurately. And this translates into a 32% drop in your diversified capital charge for concentration risk. Oh, sorry, for market risk as a whole. So then I reach my conclusion with some, some key takeaways here. Um, the prudential standards are only principle-based. Um, it gives guidance, but it, it seems that over, overall the credit ratings um, are used to map to, to probability of default for, it's for various reasons, but it is possible to, to deviate from this and to use the alternative mappings um, and credit models and validated internal models. For me, um, and I think in general, it's key to remember that whatever approach is followed should be documented and validated um, and approved, especially when alternative methods for credit quality steps are used. Um, it's important to keep track of when changes are made, who is responsible, and what is the process around it. The aim should be to determine the unique effect these credit quality steps have on your solvency capital requirement, not just in specific models, but in the overall calculation to make sure um, that it's accurate and independent. Um, there's some considerations into whether you should consider all counterparties or just your significant counterparties. Do you just look at your banks or do you look at your reinsurers? Do we start this process just by looking at our market risk calculation or do we start by looking at our reinsurers? Um, the cost and, and, and effort versus the wider benefit is definitely a consideration. And again, consideration into the governance and risk management, the GOI compliance. Um, and then a key takeaway from this is industry collaboration. Many parties can play a role to understand the value add that is possible. There is scope for working groups, and the main consideration should ultimately be to get to a consistent approach within the industry. Thank you. Now we can have questions. Okay, so any questions? Yes? Oh, wait, so there's one at the back. Hi, um, Edmund Vigro from QD Actors and Consultants. I share your fear of public speaking and uh, well done. I think you've done very well. Uh, I also share your passion for this topic specifically for credit quality steps and I've done a lot of research in this, into this as well. Um, and I think it's appropriate and very important that these types of discussions should happen in the industry. So well done with that as well. Um, You've alluded to it, but this I see using credit, credit ratings, there's two ways of doing it. The one is a pure one-to-one -one mapping, which I think you alluded to, you, you mainly spoke about. But there, in position paper triple one, attachment one, there is another form of guidance that will guide you in mapping credit ratings using their historic probability of default. So if you use the, um, the studies done by the various credit, credit rating agencies in their probability default, 
that they saw in each credit rating that they have, I think there is value to be added to use, I would, so, so in summary, I think I would not tend to do the one-to-one -one mapping. So in my research, I've seen S&P is maybe the only one that has a very close to one-to-one -to -one mapping. Mm. Um, all the others definitely converse back uh, away from that, where they don't have a one-to-one -one mapping. So I would argue that using the probability default, the, the actual historic probability default of each credit rating agency's credit ratings, and mapping that to a credit quality step doesn't, isn't in contravention of the FSI. I do agree with you, however, for reinsurers, more, more work, I think, need to happen mm. uh, in terms of that, and I think more value can be added in that sense. But it's my view that for your normal asset exposures, investment mm. exposures, um, if you do a proper investigation in your credit rating agencies, they do provide you with independence. Um, they have an independent view of the matter. So you do have that independence. And um, what is more is you, if you look at your market risk and you've got 100, 100 different exposures, it's very difficult to do an alternative approach mm. on each, each individual. So it does maybe come to our, down to cost and resources as well. Mm. That is my thoughts, maybe, uh, from my side. Thank you. That's very valuable. Um, any more comments on, on this? Okay. Um, maybe to add your point uh, of the industry uh, collaborating, uh, the PA uh, already gives us the yield curves uh, every month. How about the PA uh, also providing us <laughs> with the Correct. credit quality steps? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the regulator or someone representing the regulator can comment on that. No comment. <laughs> I just want to ask, is the industry collaborating actually happens? We're collaborating today, <laughs> so I think I think um, that that's that's um, one of the key things I would like to see from this is to encourage the discussion. But I think we're already in a space where there is probably inconsistency in the market, and it probably would add value to like with the SAM um, the SAM process and the SAM implementation to have maybe revert again to some working groups. And it doesn't have to be as regular or as formal, but on specific issues in the prudential standards that we now sit with and have to comply with, um, to have these and to have volunteers to to see that happening. And it's, I think, um, especially for the smaller guys, I think the effect on, of these calculations is more severe for the smaller players. And to actually see the smaller players participate in these workshops um, and volunteer groups. Was yeah, a question? I was just, um Wondering whether you couldn't um, apply to actually create a working group on this and um, run it because I mean it will be really interesting and I think we just need one person to volunteer and drive it forward. <laughs> it is a consideration, and I mean, we at least we at least two people here that's passionate about this, so why not? <laughs> 
Any other comments and questions? Is another one in the middle? Oh, sorry, first at the back. Sorry. Um, I mean, the main one, obviously, that is a concern is the banks mm. for a lot of us smaller players. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I was hoping for PwC's view of where they see the banks being rated at. Obviously, you have a view. You audit your companies. You're doing, mm. suppose, some half work, maybe. So, like, is there a view? Because there, there's that 9 to 10 step that mm. is a definitive uh, impact on mm. a balance sheet and on a capital calc. So although I stand here as a PwC employee, um, I'm still just Zante with my opinions today. So it's very difficult for me to give you a view as to as to what it is currently and what the correct answer is, because this area is so grey. Um, but it comes down to the independent um, investigation and talk to your auditor and talk to your consultant about it. Have the conversations um, and and get the view. There's probably a range of correct answers, um, but it's also difficult to answer given um, each, I mean, it's different scenarios, unique scenarios, unique uh, situations. So probably best um, to take this offline um, and we can discuss it further. There was another question here in the middle. Zanta, this is maybe just asking for your views. Um, <laughs> the Zanta view, not the PwC view. Yeah. I mean, if we look at the sort of credit ratings that we're getting from the, the ratings agencies, you know, one could argue that they have far more access to management and have far mm. greater detail um, that they can actually get hold of to assess an entity's credit worthiness. Mm. Um, and if you then take it from an external perspective, so insurer A in South Africa, you know, trying to invest in, or putting placing money in bank X, you know, what is the degree of, you know, additional information that insurer A would be able to really get out of bank, A, you know, the bank mm. that they're going to be putting money in relative to the credit rating? Yeah. So if we then look back to the independent process, what real benefit will there be? And, you know, what material difference would we expect mm. if they, you know, versus using a credit rating? It's a very valid question, and I've had it before as part of my research. Um, and I've seen companies do stuff um, on banks. So there's definitely value to add. There's definitely more benefit in the independent calculation. Um, and I think in some instances you do end up a little bit with the rating agency bias. How big it is, I don't know. Um, but if, if it has a big effect on your calculations and it does bother you, it is probably a good idea to, to look into it and investigate it a little bit further. Um, companies are doing stuff independently of the rating agency, so it does happen, and there is benefit from it. Yes. So it's a similar theme to a lot of the other comments and questions, but I mean, it just strikes me as strange for all the companies in the industry to invest time and resources, come with a credit rating, and you've got the same counterparty, and you're trying to get the same answer, mm. and you come with different ratings. You know, so it just strikes me as it will save the whole industry time and effort to just Have it in do it one for point. the industry as a standard default. And companies want to deviate from that for mm. whatever reason, they can do that. But I mean, ultimately, reinsurer mm. A and bank A should have a consistent credit rating. Mm. You know. So what I get from this is probably a need for the regulator and uh, industry to come together in a, in a working group type structure uh, to just discuss this further and get to a consistent point, a central point of information. 
One more. Uh, yes, I was just wondering, have you ever seen anyone come up with a higher credit quality step when they do their own <laughs> assessment? No. I personally haven't seen it, but if that is your independent view, go for it. <laughs> okay, thank you. I think that wraps it up. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for the participation. This was quite interesting, and hopefully we discuss this more. Um, and if you have any other discussions or comments, we can take it offline. Thank you very much. Thank you.